Today's sermon is on the Lord's Prayer, and it's found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And actually, the real focus of my exposition this morning will be verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know it's been a few weeks, but this morning we are now going to continue our series on the most famous prayer in the world, the Lord's Prayer. Having examined the riches of what it means to call God our Father, today we're going to move ahead to the next part of the prayer. But before I do, I want to warn you that unlike our last sermon, which explored the depth of God's fatherly love, today's text is going to focus on His holiness. As a result, if wrongly heard, This sermon could be characterized as legalistic. But it is my job as a preacher to give you the entire counsel of God, the whole counsel of God, and not just those parts which I believe might tickle your ears. It is my hope that you would listen with open hearts and gain a greater appreciation of God's love through a deeper understanding of God's holiness. So with that... Allow me to ask you a simple question. What is the third commandment and what does it mean? What is the third commandment and what does it mean? Of course, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're probably, you, you probably do care deeply about the answers to those two questions because you care deeply about the Ten Commandments, God's eternal moral law. The Ten Commandments, by the way, are the only laws in all of Scripture which the Bible says was written by the very finger of God on tablets given to Moses. And while unbelievers, I understand this, while unbelievers really don't give a rip about God's commands, you, Christian man or woman, Christian boy or girl, you care about God's commands. Not because keeping His commandments will get you into heaven, but because you love God and you desire to please Him. Obedience, after all, is one of the very first fruits of genuine salvation. Or let me put it this way, obedience, after all, is one of the very first fruits of genuine love for Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So somehow this morning, in our romanticized minds, I'm going to try to help us thoroughly disentangle this wrong notion that grace and obedience are mutually exclusive entities. Or to say it more simply, when you got saved, Jesus not only became your Savior, but He became your Lord. God not only became your Father, but he also became your master. And sometimes, without even realizing, us preachers, we also tend to preach too heavy on one aspect of God while ignoring the other. And the tragic result is an imbalanced view of God 
which fosters, I believe, an artificial spirituality. And I want us to avoid that this morning. I care about your souls. I believe that the Holy Spirit has given each one of you the wisdom to see, hopefully, that His commands are not burdensome killjoys. Perhaps they were once before you got saved. But when the Spirit of God entered your life and gave you new life, all of a sudden, your perspective of God's Word changed. Instead of being killjoys, you now see and you have the faith to believe that God's commands are more like a fence overlooking a bottomless cliff. They are all there to protect you from harm and destruction. For example, we know that marriages that honor the seventh commandment experience greater joy because it's free from the pains of adultery. Businesses that keep the Eighth Commandment experience higher profits because of customer trust due to integrity. Children who strive to obey the Fifth Commandment give considerable joy to their parents and are able to proceed in life because they are able to respect public authority figures later on in life. So as you can see, the Ten Commandments are put in place for our protection. They're not there for God's protection. They are there for the protection of our joy. It takes faith to say that, doesn't it? Because in the moment of temptation, it doesn't seem that way. Sin seems to delude us with the lie that falling into sin would give us greater joy than keeping God's commands. That is the way, after all, our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell. They disobeyed God's command, thinking that disobedience would bring them greater joy. It was an insidious lie. God's commands are there for the protection of our joy. Have you ever thought about that? So what is the third commandment? And the reason why I'm asking about the third commandment is because the third commandment is essentially rephrased in the second half of today's text. In the world's most famous prayer, Jesus commands us to pray in this manner. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so he is essentially commanding us to never blaspheme the name of God. He is incorporating the third commandment into the world's most famous prayer. We are being taught here by Christ, to keep the name of God holy. He is not only reinforcing the third commandment, but if you read carefully, look what he's doing. He is making the third commandment the very first petition of the Lord's Prayer. And so if this is the way we ought to pray, it behooves us to figure out why did God put the third commandment as the first petition in this model prayer? This is a critical observation. All of a sudden, the hallowing of God's name becomes the very cornerstone of this very important prayer. In fact, I would say everything else we pray for, whether it's for our daily bread or for our marriages or anything else, will now flow out of the main desire to see God's name hallowed. Hallowing God's name means to treat the name of God with the highest honor, to set it apart as holy. 
Again, it is a positive reiteration of the third commandment found in Exodus 27, which reads, You shall not take take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Some powerful language there, isn't it? God will not hold you guiltless. The Jews of Jesus' day were very familiar with the third commandment, and the Jews of our day still do not even write the name of God out of sheer reverence for his name. In the Old Testament, God's name was written only with consonants so that no one could pronounce it. I'll give you a technical term for it, but you don't need to know it. Believe it or not, till this day, in reality, no one really knows how to pronounce the Hebrew name many Jewish scholars refer to as Yahweh, or the incorrect version, Jehovah. Many Jews are so reverent of the name Yahweh that instead of saying it, they use the name Hashem, which simply means the name. They're so afraid of breaking the third commandment so that that they won't even say Yahweh. But what is the name of God? Well, as I've said, it's often identified as Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean? The word Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb meaning to be. As such, whenever the Jews used this term, they were essentially affirming that their God was He who exists. Or if you remember the burning bush, I am that I am. I exist. Unlike the other idols from nations who were the idols which were merely the work of human hands with no real existence whatsoever, this was the reason why Yahweh didn't simply pull the Israelites out of Egypt. He could have. But instead, what did he do? He permitted them to first see the ten plagues unleashed upon what was at the time the world's most powerful civilization. And why? Scripture tells us why. In Exodus, God says, I will today execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. He wanted the Israelites to see his power over the complete impotence of the Egyptian gods. Plagues like darkness, where the Egyptians worshipped the sun god, And God said, no, I created light. The Jews knew that their God was the powerful creator, the one true God of the world, whose existence both predated their own existence and was not dependent on their own existence. And one Christian scholar shared about the time he went to a conference that that hosted both Jews and uh, um, Christians, And one scholar went up there and he spoke at the conference. He was a well-known Christian scholar and he began to speak quite eloquently while repeatedly pronouncing the divine name of God. He kept saying Yahweh over and over. For us as Christians, it's not a derogatory thing. But as he repeatedly spoke the name of Yahweh, some of the Jewish scholars at the conference were so appalled and disturbed that they were literally physically shaking. Now, does this mean we ought to physically shake whenever we use the name of God? Absolutely not. I've used the name Yahweh a couple of times already from the pulpit in this morning's sermon. 
But I will say that after reading that account, in an age where God's name is often carelessly used as a cuss word, for me at least, such reverence for God was a bit refreshing. So how do we then hallow and reverence the name of God? How do we do it? It's, a, it's there in the Lord's prayer. It's Christ's desire, and it ought to be ours. Well, here are four ways. First, the most basic and straightforward. And I don't want to come across as pedantic, but I, I want you to realize this the basic, straightforward way, because it's often the most mocked. Today's passage is a prohibition against curse words that include the words God, Lord, Jesus, and Christ, as well as a command against coarse speech in general. All of these things are certainly covered underneath the third commandment, but they do not exhaust its application. If we were to translate the Hebrew of this passage most literally, we would see that this law is telling us that we shall not lift the name of God to emptiness or worthlessness or vanity. Furthermore, we reverence our God's name by not associating our Creator with wickedness or invoking His name in a trivial manner. Now this is where you're going to have to do some wrestling. And I I think it's a good wrestling because it shows reverence for your faith. Christians shouldn't flippantly say things like, Oh my God, unless we're actually really crying out to Him. Personally, for myself, I apply this command even to the phrase, God bless you when someone sneezes. Do you really mean that when you say that? You're invoking the name of God. I would run by the the rule of thumb. Unless you mean it, don't say it. Revere the name of God. It's the most basic interpretation of this command. And I think it ought to be covered. Second, we, we reverence the name of God by being careful when, when to claim His name. Sometimes what Christians will do is they will invoke the name of God to add extra emphasis to their own personal wishes. They will claim that God told me to blank or God told me that blank. And it later turns out that perhaps what they were claiming was completely unbiblical. In that sense, they have used the name of God in vain. Unfortunately, too many Christians get a sensation and immediately say that God told them to do something, when perhaps it might even be sinful. Christians ought to be careful and extremely cautious about invoking God's name to further their own status, interests, or whatever it might be in relation to themselves and to other Christians. And sometimes we invoke the name of God because it presents strength to our argument. If someone comes to me and says, God told me to marry her, what am I going to say? No, God didn't. Who am I? We recognize this reality even when we take office, as we see the president putting his his hand on a Bible to take an oath under God. One of the reasons why Jesus said, just let your yeas be yeas and your nays nays, is because we ought to be people of integrity. But we understand that the name of God carries power and integrity, and authenticity. Third, we hallow the name of God by the way we live our lives. 
It's no big surprise that the biggest turnoff for unbelievers is the fact that many Christians who claim to love God do not live holy lives. They've witnessed too many Christians or self-proclaimed Christians say hurtful things, do hurtful things, and yet at the same time wear a cross, carry the bumper sticker, wear the, those old WWJD bracelets or whatnot. And one of the primary excuses for not attending church is the belief that it's full of hypocrites. You've heard this before. Listen to Romans 2, to 24. You who forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So as Christians, we blaspheme the name of God when we live lives that are incongruous to our faith. It doesn't mean that we are going to be perfect. We all sin. But I think we all know people who claim to know Christ, but the more we know them, their lives have no fragrance of Christ. And that's when we blaspheme the name of God. When our lives don't line up to our label. Fourth and finally, We hallow the name of God when we worship Him according to Scripture, as we're doing here today. This morning, you and I are hallowing the name of God. You and I were made to worship. But whether you believe it or not, you and I were made to worship. Human beings are incurably spiritual. That's the reason why my job title exists in the military. And we will either worship the one true God or we will worship an idol. For some, they will worship themselves. Romans 1 talks about that. Others will worship money or prestige, rank perhaps. Well, the bottom line is the human heart, again, is incurably spiritual and it will worship something or someone. There's no question about it. So immediately after it, after hallowing God's name, the very next line of the Lord's Prayer reads, Your kingdom come. It's about God's kingdom, not our own. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now quite honestly, in the sovereignty of God, God still runs the the show here on earth. We just aren't really able to see it all that clear. We will one day when Christ returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. God's name, therefore, is hallowed as people turn from their idols to worship the one true God. So worship here is at the very core of hallowing God. So if you're if you're leaving here wondering, what does that mean? When Jesus said, hallowed be your name, what is at the core of it? I'm here to tell you, this is it. At the core of hallowing the name of God is worship. And in fact, many of our disorders and delinquencies result not out of some sort of psychological or even biological disorder. It is a worship disorder. And that's what Romans 1 speaks so powerfully about. Worship is at the very core of hallowing God's holy name. 
Our God is God, and He is truly worthy of our worship. Amen? As a result, missionaries go out into all the world because the worship of the one true God has yet to exist in certain parts of the world. Did you know that today there are 1.6 billion people who have still never heard, never heard the name of Jesus? Never. 1.6 billion people. And that's why missionaries go. Because they desire more than anything else to see God's name hallowed in the nations of the world. So brothers and sisters, as I close, I want to assure you that a life spent on spreading the gospel is a life spent hallowing the name of God. I believe there is no more valuable way to live. Unless we forgot, what is the gospel? It's a very simple, straightforward message. Four essential points. There is a holy God who loves you, but he is also a God of justice. And as a result, he must, out of his very nature, his holy nature, he must judge and send sinners to hell. Point number two. All of us here, we're sinners. We don't, we're not sinners because we've sinned, but rather we sin because we're sinners. It's who we are by nature, as per Ephesians. And that's bad news for us because the Bible tells us that no matter how many good things we attempt to do, all of our good works are as a filthy rag in the eyes of a holy God. And so we deserve hell, every single one of us. We deserve hell for our sins. But here's the good news. The great news is that God so loved the world, He sent His only Son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, to die on the cross and pay for your sins. He paid for your sins. And on the third day, He historically resurrected. This is not a myth we're following this morning. But here's the thing. That's all great, and it is a fact of history. But it means absolutely nothing for you eternally if you don't do the last part of the gospel. The last part of the gospel is a call to repentance and belief. You must repent, turn from your life of sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord God and Savior. It doesn't matter if your daddy was a pastor. It doesn't matter if your mom served in the church. It doesn't matter if you were raised in Sunday school since the time you could walk. Bottom line is, you must personally, personally make that transaction in your heart. I can't do it for you. But I wish you would. Because you will experience a peace like none other. Jesus opens His arms to you today and He asks you to let Him in. And it is when you believe in Jesus, that faith, the moment you believe in Him as your Lord God and Savior, at that moment, you are saved. At that moment, you are a Christian. At that moment, God's name is hallowed in your life. I want to say one last thing with regard to repentance and faith. People think that it's two separate things, but I want to, I want to clearly let you know that they are two sides of the same coin. If I'm living a life of sin, and sin is all I know, and Jesus is calling me, 
The only way for me to turn to Jesus is if I literally repent, right? 180, turn from my life of sin in order to put my faith in Jesus Christ. And in that sense, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. I can't have faith in Christ unless I repent of my sinful life. But the beauty of all this is that the moment you do, the Lord accepts you. Scripture says He will in no wise turn anyone aside who come to Him in faith. So this morning, I put that invitation out to you. We're not going to have an all to call or anything like that because I'm aware of the fact that you could come up and still not come to Jesus. But I will let you know, you could do this in the quiet of your home later on. But wherever you are, make that transaction with God. Believe and be saved so that God's name would be hallowed in your life. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, today for your word. Father, I pray that your name would be hallowed.